And I don't know of a more exciting book in Scripture than the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. And let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our Bible study. Father, there is nothing that we can really do to count or for your kingdom to, or to accomplish things in your purposes, Lord, without the help of your Spirit leading us and guiding us and empowering us. And tonight, Lord, we come to the Scriptures knowing that if we're truly to glean the lessons that we need to hear, that we need to apply, we need your Spirit to help us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, for you to come and soften our hearts and open our ears and help us to grasp what you have preserved for us in the sacred scriptures and in the book of Joshua. And we ask that you work tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if Joshua were a video at Blockbusters, you'd find it in the action section. It would be right on the J-shelf, probably between Jaws and Jurassic Park. It's a thrilling account of military conquest. It's got action, intrigue, espionage. It contains examples of bravery and courage, deceit and trickery. Joshua is full of spectacular battle scenes with out-of-this-world special effects. It is certainly a war epic. Joshua is full of chills and thrills, but it has deeper levels of meaning as well. For example, spiritually, <coughs> Joshua is full of instructions for Christians. You remember Moses led the people to the border of the promised land, but he was unable to bring them into victory and blessing. That task was left up to his predecessor, General Joshua. Idiomatically in Scripture, Moses represents the law, while Joshua is the Hebrew translation of the Greek name Jesus. And figuratively speaking, Joshua teaches us that the law can never bring us into God's peace and God's rest. The law convicts us of sin, but only Jesus can give us victory over sin. It takes Jesus to lead us into the promised land. The book of Joshua shows you and I how we can trust our battles to the Lord Jesus. But Joshua is also instructive on even another level. You wouldn't think that the sixth book of the Old Testament would be a prophetic book. But we're going to discover tonight that Joshua's conquest of Canaan is an amazing model of the book of Revelation. The book of Joshua is divided into two sections. The first 12 chapters describe the conquest of the land. The last 12 chapters discuss the land's division and its settlement. We'll cover the first 12 chapters tonight and the last 12 chapters next week. The first nine verses of chapter 1 could be subtitled, The Making of a Leader. They introduce to us Israel's new chief and his qualifications for leadership. Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and as we do, I want to point out to you seven principles for leadership. Verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, here's principle number one, preparation. 
Before taking the helm, Joshua had been an assistant under Moses. He had prepared himself. Before he assumed leadership, he had first served an apprenticeship. Billy Graham was quoted as saying, If I knew the Lord was coming back in three years, I'd spend two years studying and one year preaching. Never underestimate the importance of preparation. Before a person can lead, they first must be willing to be led. The Hebrew term assistant refers to a menial role, a servant, a waiter. Joshua would lead this nation to claim God's blessings. But for a time, his job description was simply, do what Moses tells you to do. And through that, he prepared for his future role. God says to Joshua in verses 2 and 3, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, As I said to Moses, principle number two is purpose. A good leader has to have a purpose. He has to have a vision. A spiritual leader gets that vision from God and then sets out to fulfill the purpose. He or she, the spiritual leader, is a purpose-driven Christian. Harry Truman once said, I wonder how far Moses would have gone if he'd taken a pole in Egypt. What would Jesus have preached if he'd taken a poll in Israel? It isn't the polls or the public opinion of the moment that counts. It's right and wrong and leadership. Men with fortitude, honesty, and a belief in the right. That makes epochs. Your church, your family, your business needs leadership with conviction, with godly purpose. A true leader stays the course, sticks to the purpose, even when it's not popular. God continues in verse 4, From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Leadership principle number three is perspective. God wants Joshua to grasp the big picture. Therefore, he spreads out the land before him and gives him the boundaries. You see, Joshua's men were eager to fight. But Joshua was the one who was supposed to see the full scope of God's plan. It was through his perspective that he was able to tell the men where and when to fight. This is what makes a good leader. Perspective. The ability to grasp the big picture. Verse 5 tells us, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Here's principle number four. It's persuasion. A true leader doesn't wait on someone else's initiatives. He's ready to take the stand. He's the one that rises up and says, follow me for I am following God. It was said of one successful leader, his great attribute was that he made decisions. You never had to say, what will we, what are we going to do tomorrow? He told you. I believe that our families, our kids, I believe that in the church, we need people that are willing to make tough decisions. 
and willing to assume responsibility for those decisions. This is what makes a good leader. Those who will make a decision and not be afraid to take the heat that might come with it. Principle number five, we could call people. God tells Joshua in verse six, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. You see, once the land was conquered, it would be left up to Joshua to divvy it up among the twelve tribes. And that task would plunge Joshua into the nitty-gritty work of dealing with personalities and quirks and complaints in dealing with people. In the midst of battle, people take orders. In peacetime, people question orders. (laughs) And Joshua needs to be a servant to the people. He needs to listen to them. He needs to love them. He needs to show them understanding. He needs to bear with their peculiarities. A good leader is a servant to the people. He cares. He listens. It's been said... You can't be a good shepherd if you can't stand the smell of sheep. To be a good leader, you've got to love people. In verses 7 and 8, God tells Joshua, Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Principle number six is precept. A godly leader leads God's people by God's book, by God's precepts. He studies the principles of Scripture. He acts according to them. One of Britain's greatest leaders, Oliver Cromwell, once commented, the leader's job is to give the people not what they want, but what is good for them. And the job of the spiritual leader is not to tickle people's ears, but to teach people the truth of the living God. When a leader departs from Scripture, I call it spiritual malpractice. Principle number seven, we could call presence. In verse nine, God promises Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. John Ruskin once put it, Really great men have a curious feeling that the greatness is not in them, but through them. You remember the secret of Samson's stupendous strength was not the size of his biceps or his pecs or his, you know, muscular physique. No, not at all. In fact, you don't come up to a guy that looks like Bill Goldberg and ask him what's the secret of his great strength. I believe that Samson was an ordinary looking guy. But we know what the secret of his strength was. It was the presence of God that rested upon his life. God made him strong. And this was to be the case for Joshua. This is the case for us. Joshua understood these things. And that's what made him a good leader. God is still looking for leaders. 
The church is an army. And an army needs leaders. Your church, your community, your family needs a leader that will rise up like a Joshua and say to his people, follow me as I follow God. Are you a leader? Do you want to be a leader? Will you let God make you a leader? Beginning in verse 10, Joshua leads. He prepares the Hebrews to cross over the Jordan. 800 years earlier, God had promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. And for the last 450 years, the Hebrews had been in Egypt or in the wilderness. But now the moment has come. They hold the deed. Now it's time to take possession of the land. Understand, all land is God's land. Psalm 24, verse 1 tells us, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. You thought you owned that track of land or your lot that your house sits on, but you don't. God does. All land is God's land. God has every right to give any parcel to any person He chooses. God took the land away from the Canaanites as a punishment and as a judgment. They were a wicked and an evil people. And he gave the land to the Israelites, and that was God's right to do so because the land belonged to him. Today's Palestinians migrated into the land long after God biblically settled the issue of its ownership. The Palestinians have no ultimate claim to the land. I'm not suggesting that in some cases they shouldn't be recompensed for losses, but the land belongs to Israel. It was promised to Abraham. And possessed by Joshua. And it belongs to the Jewish people to this day. And in verses 16 and 17, the first Jewish settlers were eager to take what belonged to them. We're told, so they answered Joshua saying, All that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. The first move that Moses, that Joshua makes is to send two men to spy out the first of Canaan's many city-states, the city of Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city. It was seven miles west of the Jordan River. Jericho consisted of about seven acres, surrounded by a double wall. The outer wall was six feet thick. The inner wall, 12 feet thick. The first wall was 11 feet high. The second wall, 35 feet high. And it was tilted at a 35 degree angle that prohibited encroaching armies from being able to scale it with their ladders. Jericho's walls would be the first major challenge for the Israelites. Houses, though, were built between these two walls. And it was in one of these houses that the two spies found refuge. A prostitute named Rahab harbored God's coverts. And it was a testy moment when the police came to interrogate her. She had hid the spies up on the rooftop under several stalks of flax. One sneeze and it could have been curtains. And then she told a lie. Rahab said to the police that the spies had already left the city. 
But if the king's men hurried, they might be able to catch them. And so she sent them on a wild Jews chase. Which brings up a very provocative point. Are we ever justified in telling a lie? The answer to me is yes. When the Nazi stormtroopers rounded up Jews to send them to the death camps, I believe it was not only excusable, but it was noble to lie to save their lives. When not telling a lie is a greater sin than telling the lie itself, I believe that God looks at the heart. I don't believe in what they call situational ethics, but I do believe in spiritual ethics. The letter of the law kills. The spirit gives life. And strict wooden applications of the law don't take into account many of life's ironies. That's why God has given us his spirit to help us apply morals and ethics to the different situations we encounter in a loving and consistent manner. It's interesting what Rahab says to the spies in chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. What a statement of faith. She's heard what God did in Egypt. The victories that he's won east of the Jordan. She realizes that the God of Israel is the one true God. Rahab becomes a believer. She knows that Jericho is going to fall, that Israel is going to triumph. And so she tries to position herself on the winning team. Hey, she's a smart lady. God's side always wins. And if you're a smart person, you'll want to join his team as soon as possible as well. Rahab was a hooker. She was a whore. She was a madam. A woman who sold her body for sexual favors. She had fallen off the ladder of morality a long time ago. And yet it was not Rahab's lily-white goodness or purity that saved her. She wasn't pure at all. It was her faith that saved her. And it's by faith that you and I are saved too. You might be like a Rahab. You might have a sin-stained past. But no matter, if you trust in God's promise of salvation, He will accept you and forgive you, and you will be saved. It's interesting, both Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, James chapter 2, verse 25, note the faith of Rahab. The New Testament holds her up as an example. If you want to know the extent to which faith can save, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. There in the lineage of Jesus Christ, 
the spotless Lamb of God, the purest of the pure, you'll find Rahab the hooker. A testimony to the power of saving faith, saving power of trust and dependence upon God. The two spies repel down the wall on a scarlet rope, Lord from Rahab's window. They hide for three days in the mountains, then they return to the other side of the river. When Jericho falls, Rahab is saved because of a scarlet cord that she hangs in her window. That scarlet rope became the symbol of her salvation. And interestingly enough, it's also the symbol of our salvation. For Jesus, too, came into the world to spy out the land. He hung from a scarlet cord or a bloodstained cross. Afterwards, he hid for three days, rose from the dead, then ascended to the other side of the river. But he's coming back to judge the world. And the only folks who will be saved are those that are holding on to that scarlet cord. The scarlet rope is a wonderful picture of the work of Jesus Christ. The next day, a miracle occurs. The Hebrews crossed the Jordan led by the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as the priest carrying the Ark set foot on top of the water, suddenly the rivers back up. God begins to supernaturally dam up the Jordan River. Joshua 3 verse 16 tells us, The waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam. Adam was 20 miles north of the Dead Sea, and there the banks of the Jordan River were 40 feet high, which prohibited the waters from flooding out into the whole region. Notice verse 15. As those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the Jordan. Notice the priests had to have faith. They crossed on dry ground, but their first step was into the river. Isn't that interesting? The waters didn't roll back until their toes got wet. Would you have taken that step? Would you have had the faith? It looked like they were going to swim. But God did a miracle when they looked to Him. And there are times when him, at first, looks like a swim. (laughs) But faith knows him. Faith knows that God will never let us down when he calls on us to take a step of faith. We can trust him. On the other side of the river, 12 representatives of each of the 12 tribes retrieve a stone from the Jordan to make a memorial to this miracle. Joshua chapter 4 verse 14 tells us that the miracle validated Joshua's leadership in the eyes of the people. The stoppage of the Jordan River so closely resembled the parting of the Red Sea that the people realized God's hand was on Joshua just as it had been on Moses. The miracle at the Jordan River also had another effect. Chapter 5 verse 1 tells us that it scared the living daylights out of the Canaanites and the Amorites. Verse 1 reads, their heart melted 
And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. In 1887, archaeological confirmation of this verse was discovered. The Amarna letters were sent by a coalition of Canaanite kings to Egypt requesting military assistance to stave off a powerful group of invaders that they called in the letters the Habarus or the Hebrews. And it confirmed archaeologically what God had already said scripturally. And apparently it didn't work. The Egyptians had had enough of these guys. God's miracle at the Jordan was really a watershed event in the history of Israel. It solidified their identity as the people of God. It was the same miracle, but it had a new meaning. You see, when Israel came to the Red Sea, they were slaves escaping their enemies. But when they came to the Jordan River, they were an army determined to conquer their enemies. Same miracle, different meaning. The cross of Jesus is likewise one miracle with two meanings. The Red Sea speaks of salvation. It parallels the day that I learned that Christ died for me. But the Jordan speaks of victory. And it marks the occasion when I learned that I died in Christ. Two important revelations. I'm not the same person anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm dead to the past. I possess the power of God. God wants me to rise up and overcome and conquer my enemies. That's a revelation that you need to come to. You've been through the Red Sea, but have you crossed the Jordan? At the cross of Jesus, the Red Sea parts. Sin is forgiven. A prisoner escapes. But at the same cross, the prisoner becomes a prince. He crosses the Jordan and his enemies melt. An overcomer emerges. You've passed through the Red Sea, but have you crossed the Jordan? Do you see yourself as a new person in Christ Jesus? John chapter 2 verse 28 tells us that Jesus was baptized by John in Bethabara, which means house of passage. Apparently it was the very same spot that the Hebrews crossed the Jordan River. Two things happen while the Hebrews are camped on the banks of the Jordan that additionally solidify their identity as the people of God. First, the second generation of males are circumcised and then the whole nation celebrates Passover. These two ceremonies foreshadow our baptism and our communion which are two things that help us solidify our identity as children of God. Circumcision was the Hebrew ID, you might say, the soldier's dog tags, in essence. The proof that they carried in their body that they belonged to God. It solidified their identity when they were circumcised. And this is what water baptism does for the Christian. It's a mark of identity. There is no turning back once you've been baptized. Baptized Baptism labels forever you as a child of God. Passover had the same impact. It was a reminder of the events that made the people a nation. 
the miracle of the Exodus. And when we take communion, we're also reminded of the events that make us the people of God. Our miracle, the cross of Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, verse 9, we're told, The Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means rolling. In other words, at Gilgal, the stigma of failure that had been associated with the wilderness rolled away. It was a new day for Israel. Victory was now assured. Let me ask you, have you been to Gilgal? Has the stigma of your past, the stigma of your sin, the stigma of your years in the wilderness, has it rolled away? Have you crossed the Jordan? Have you seen yourself in Christ? Have you adopted a new identity? Do you look in the mirror and say, man, I'm not the same person anymore. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. When you cross over the Jordan, a new day begins for you as well. Verse 12 indicates the change. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Wilderness rations have come to an end. It's now time for Israel to rise up in faith and possess all God's promises. The end of chapter 5 marks a turning point for Joshua. If I were to ask you, who led the children of Israel in the battle of Jericho, I'm sure you would answer, Joshua. I've heard the song. I know Joshua led the battle of Jericho. But you would be mistaken. And the real answer might surprise you. In verse 13, we're told, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. Now, he was out scouting the city. He's thinking to himself, how are we going to scale these unscalable walls? Then he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. This man is ready to fight. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua fulfills the role of any good sentry. He shouts out, Who goes there, friend or foe? And so he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In other words, Joshua, it's time for you to move over. Heaven, heaven help us has come to pass. Joshua is being replaced. God has dispatched his own commander to lead the Hebrews into battle. Wow. Verse 14 says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Boy, a humble Joshua is quick to submit. And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. He receives the same command that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. What a comfort this was to Joshua and to Israel. On the eve of their first major battle, up against unbreachable walls, the commander of the Lord's army comes to take over responsibility for the campaign. Wow! And who was this commander? 
Well, the clue is in how Joshua treats him. For he falls down and worships him. And of course, this precludes him being an angel. God's angels are never worshipped. They never accept worship. The only angel that accepts worship is Lucifer, the fallen angel. Only God himself receives worship, and that's why I believe that this commander was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Who fought the battle of Jericho? Jesus did. Guys, whether it's a crack in the rock on Mount Sinai or a lookout under a palm tree near Jericho, the presence of God turns ordinary places and ordinary times into holy moments. When God meets us, the ground we're standing on is holy ground. And all we can do is bow, obey, worship. Recently, I ran across a list entitled The Rules of Combat. It's a humorous list. And if you're a veteran, you're going to really enjoy this list. Here they are, the rules of combat. Number one, if the enemy is in range, so are you. Think about that. Number two, incoming fire always has the right of way. That makes sense to me. Number three, the easy way is always mind. (laughs) Number four, try to look unimportant. They may be looking for brass. Number five, teamwork is essential. It gives the enemy someone else to shoot at. Number six, don't draw fire. It irritates the people around you. I would say so. Number seven, when the pin is pulled, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. Number eight, five-second fuses only last three seconds. Number nine, it is generally inadvisable to eject directly over the area you just bombed. You won't be welcome. And number ten, if it's stupid but works, it isn't stupid. The rules of combat. Well, that's how Joshua must have felt after the Battle of Jericho. For in chapter 6, the commander gives to Joshua some really strange instructions. Ingenious generals have used unorthodox combat strategies before and since, but none has ever employed a plan as bizarre as Joshua. For six days, the men of Israel are to march around the walls of Jericho. On the seventh day, they're to march seven times around the city. And at the end of the seventh revolution, the priests are to blow seven trumpets. And the people are to shout with a great shout. This they do. And in verse 20, we're told, the wall fell down flat. Splat. Flat. All the inhabitants of Jericho were slaughtered, except for the family of Rahab. It's interesting that several Levitical laws were broken in the Battle of Jericho. It's surprising. According to the law, the Ark of the Covenant was to never go into battle. Nor were the priests. But at Jericho, both led the way. 
Notice too, on the seventh day, they made seven trips. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, let alone fight a battle. They broke the Sabbath law as well. What's the deal? Remember who's leading this charge. It's Jesus. And I believe the point that God is trying to make is that victory over sin is not achieved by keeping the law. It's achieved how? By following Jesus Christ. By trusting in Him. By leaning on Him. Not in keeping the law. And here's the challenge when it comes to following Jesus. It requires faith to follow Jesus. Because the path that Jesus will often chart for us may appear strange, bizarre to us. You see, the Christian life is full of paradox. You gain when you lose. You get when you give. You live when you die. You become great when you seek to be a servant. You end up first when you're willing to be last. You become strong when you admit that you're weak. (laughs) Sounds strange, doesn't it? How did the walls of Jericho fall? I have no idea, but they did. How does joy come from sacrifice? I have no idea, but it does. How does the abundant life flow from total surrender? I don't know, but trust me, it really does. Trusting Jesus requires faith. It requires at times accepting a bizarre premise. But when we believe Him, victories are won. Bounty is gained. The blessings will flow. And imagine how the citizens of Jericho reacted to the Hebrews during the first six days they marched. Men, women, boys, girls stood on top of the wall and belly laughed. God's battle plan made Israel a laughing stock. And likewise... Following Jesus sometimes will seem foolish to the world. You'll have relatives laugh. You'll have friends mock. You just remember who gets the last laugh. Remember Jericho. When the walls fall, Joshua sets his sights on more conquest. His plan is to divide and conquer the land. In essence, he splits Canaan in half. He conquers the southern coalition of kings first... Then he defeats the northern kings at Hazor. Gilgal becomes the beachhead, the base, from which he sends his troops out into battle. Ai was the next city westward. But it was so tiny, it had no walls like Jericho. It wasn't a fortress city. And Joshua dispatches a small battalion of men to take the city of Ai. After Jericho, Ai would be a laugher. But at Jericho... In the midst of the victory were sown the seeds of defeat. For a man by the name of Achan disobeyed the Lord and took for himself the forbidden spoils. What chapter 7 verse 1 calls the accursed things. This stuff was to be burned, not earned. And because of Achan's secret sin, we're told the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. So when Israel goes up to fight, little Ai, the unthinkable happens. The underdog wins. 
36 Hebrews die. The rest of the battalion tuck tail and run. On the heels of one of the greatest victories ever, Joshua suffers one of the most humiliating defeats of all time. The embarrassing loss demoralizes the Hebrews. It boosts the confidence of the Canaanites. And Joshua gets mad at God. He prays in verse 7. Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? He blames the defeated Ai on the Lord. He's saying it was the Lord's fault. God responds in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed things from among you. Israel has been sabotaged by secret sin. I wonder how many Christians and how many families and how many churches, how many business ventures have suffered from the same problem of hidden or secret sin. You've been aching because like Achan, there's an accursed thing. There's some sinful stuff buried in your life. Are you hiding an accursed thing? Israel doesn't win again until the secret sin is flushed out and dealt with. The next morning, in fact, the tribes parade before Joshua and the Lord weeds out the guilty party. Achan is stoned to death and the items he took are burned. But before launching the rocks, Joshua says to Achan in chapter 7, verse 25, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And the name of the place was the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble. And so Joshua uses a pun before he delivers the punishment. There's really, guys, no such thing as secret sin. One person's sin can bring down a whole camp. If you're hiding a sin in your life, eventually it will have an effect on you, on your family, your business perhaps, maybe even your church. The people around you can be deprived of God's blessing because of the hidden sin in your life. If you have a secret sin, deal with it. And thank the Lord for the blood of Jesus because through it, God will be far more merciful to you than He, will with, than he did with Achan. Chapter 8 describes the conquest of Ai. Once the secret sin is dealt with, God is ready to fight again for Israel. And he plans a good old-fashioned ambush on Ai. The night before the attack, 30,000 troops go around behind the city. The next morning, Joshua approaches. Then he retreats, which flushes the men out of Ai. Once Ai is vacated, the 30,000 men pour into the city from the opposite side, and they burn it to the ground. And then both front and rear flanks converge on the men of Ai who've been drawn outside their city. 
But here's the irony. (laughs) We're told in verse 1 that unlike the battle of Jericho, after the battle of Ai, Israel is permitted to take the spoils. Which means if Achan had just waited, he could have had his Babylonian garment and his silver and his wedge of gold. If he had just waited, if he had just obeyed the Lord, God would have blessed him with the very things that had cost him his life. God isn't out to deprive us. God wants to bless us. But He wants to bless us in His time and in His way. And it's up to us to trust Him and to wait upon Him. At the end of chapter 8, God's instructions to Moses in Deuteronomy 27 are fulfilled. Israel journeys to the valley of Shechem, north of Bethel, between two mountain peaks, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And there Joshua reads to the people the law of Moses and reminds them of its blessings and curses. If they obey God's law, they will be blessed, and he reads the blessings. If they disobey the law, they'll be cursed, and he reads the curses. This was a needed reminder for these people. One of the commands that Joshua read was from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Yet in chapter 9, Joshua gets tricked into disobeying this command. You see, Gibeon was the next city westward after Ai. And Gibeon was a frightened bunch of people. They were scared, but rather than fight, they decided to rely upon a deception. They sent out a disheveled-looking delegation. These guys were dressed like they had been on the road for several days, like a bunch of truck drivers that had been away from home for a long time. They looked like they had come from a long distance. And they told Joshua that they had heard of the great victories that he had won. And they wanted to sign a peace treaty with him. And because Joshua thought they were foreigners, he went ahead and he signed the peace treaty. Three days later, though, he realized that he was con- He had been conned. He realized that these men were actually from the next village over the hill, this village of Gibeon. Joshua honors the treaty. But he goes on and he sentences the Gibeonites to work as woodcutters and water bearers in the tabernacle. Stoking the sacrificial fire, keeping the labor full would become the perpetual tasks for the sons of Gibeon because of the deception that they fostered upon Israel. Joshua chapter 9 verse 14 though tells us why all this even happened in the first place. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. They were a little too confident. This looked okay. This looked right to them. They relied upon their own judgment. And they neglected to seek the Lord. Always be cautious. Always be careful. Just because it looks right to you doesn't mean... Has God's blessing. Be careful. 
always consult the Lord before making an important decision. Isaiah 28, verse 16 is a good reminder. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Think through it. Call Clark Howard. But most importantly, pray about it. And seek the Lord's counsel. And He will give you wisdom. Now Joshua's victories have not gone unnoticed by the surrounding kings. In chapter 8, verse 29, when he lynched the king of Ai, I'm sure it got the attention of the surrounding kings. And that's why Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, along with four other kings, form a coalition to attack the Hebrews. Canaan was a collection of rival city-states, but in light of this new common threat, these kings dropped their animosities and they joined forces. And this southern coalition meets Israel at the Battle of Beth Horon. And if you think Jericho was an example of supernatural intervention, you ain't seen nothing yet. A little geography lesson here will be helpful. Do we have the map? Good. From Gilgal to Ai is just 15 miles, but it's all uphill. Gilgal is 900 feet below sea level. Ai is in the mountains 2,600 feet below sea le- above sea level. So it's about a 3,500 foot difference. Keep going westward toward Gibeon and you slope back down the west side of the mountain. The valley below Gibeon is called the Valley of Beth Horon. The map's a little confusing. The Valley of Ajalon runs south. The Valley of Beth Horon runs from Gibeon down to Ezekah, and that's where it dumps into the Valley of Ajalon. So what happened was that the kings from the south came up by Ezekah. They came up and they camped right below Gibeon in the Valley of Beth Horon. They had walked up and came up through the Valley of Ajalon. Joshua hears that these southern kings are camped near Beth Horon, which was about 25 miles south of Shechem. And so that night he pushes his troops through the night. So when the sun comes up, he can launch a surprise attack against Adonai Zedek and these Amorite buddies. Joshua gets to Beth Horon and the fight commences. God intervenes in this battle with a little heavy artillery. He bombs the Amorites with what we're told are large hailstones. In chapter 10, verse 11, we're told that more of the enemy died from the hailstones than by the swords of the Israelites. The Amorites were routed by God as well as Joshua. But you see, the sun is setting. And Joshua is concerned that the Amorites are going to get away under the cover of darkness. The mop-up needs a few more hours of daylight. And so Joshua prays an interesting prayer. In verse 12, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. He asks God to cause the sun to stand still so that they can have a few more hours to finish their battle. You ever prayed a prayer like that? And we're told in verse 13, 
So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Let this prove once and for all that there is no limit to the extent that God will go to help his people defeat their enemies. There is no limit. God wants you to live in victory over fear, over sin, over temptation, over worry. And if you ask the Lord, if you trust the Lord, God will do whatever it takes. If it requires the sun standing still, so be it to give you the opportunity and to provide you the tools so that you can win the victory. So don't come to me and say, well, I just can't do it. God hadn't come through for me. God won't help me. If he he can stop the sun in the sky, he can help you with your problem. That this miracle happens should really not be questioned. The only question is how it happened. There are historical references to the long day or to the long night in most every ancient culture. The Chinese speak of a long day, the Aztecs of Mexico, the Choctaw Indians, the Peruvian Indians all report of a long night. How it happened, though, is more of a mystery. Certainly, God could have reached out with his hand and literally slowed the earth's rotation Genesis 1 verse 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. And if he created it, I'm sure he can do with it anything that he chooses. (coughs) There are, though, some respected scientists who have posed some astronomical explanations for what happened. A colleague of Albert Einstein, a man by the name of Emmanuel Velikovsky, has written a book called Worlds in Collision. And in his book, he suggests that a comet passed through the Earth's atmosphere in the midst of this battle. The comet tilted the Earth's axis, accounting for the long day. Its tail pummeled the Earth with a shower of asteroids or hailstones. It was, in essence, a miracle of timing. God reached into deep space and he picked out this comet and he synchronized its pass across the earth's atmosphere right in accordance with Joshua's prayer. That would be quite a miracle. Another book by NASA scientist Donald Wesley Patton called Catastrophism in the Old Testament suggests that the earth was victim of a close encounter with the planet Mars. Patton has constructed computer models that show that around the time of Joshua, Mars passed by the earth at a distance of 28,000 miles. Note the closest the moon ever comes to the earth is 221,463 miles. So 28,000 miles is spitting distance astronomically. A close flyby would have caused the earth's rotation to grind to a halt. All kinds of global disasters would have taken place, including hailstones near Beth Horan. Patton's theory may also explain why the ancients worshipped planets that they could barely see. The city of Rome, for example, was dedicated to the god of Mars, the god of war. These explanations also shine an interesting light on the book of Revelation. For if a planetary flyby or if the sweep of a comet through the Earth's atmosphere occurred in the past, it could also occur in the future. 
and possibly explain some of the cataclysmic events that are discussed in the book of Revelation, events that will occur in the last days. Revelation describes massive earthquakes, the sky tearing, meteorites falling from the sky, the surface of the earth scorched, mountains moving from their places, islands disappearing, etc. Which brings up another provocative observation, and that is when you think of it, the book of Joshua is an amazing model for the book of Revelation. Remember the theme of both books. You've got a Jesus or a Joshua waging war against a collection of pagan nations in order to take a possession of the land that belongs to God and his people. In Joshua, the land is Canaan. In the book of Revelation, the land is the entire earth. <clears throat> and look at the parallels. Two spies enter Jericho. Two witnesses are sent by God to the earth. Seven trumpets shake the walls of Jericho. Seven trumpet judgments shake the earth in Revelation. Both campaigns take seven years. Both opposition forces are led by a king from Jerusalem. Adonai Zedek is a type of the Antichrist. In both books, God uses cataclysmic judgments to humble the enemy. Hailstones fall in Beth Horon. In Revelation, 100-pound hailstones fall on the blasphemers. In Revelation 6, verse 15, the kings of the earth hide themselves in the rocks and the caves. In Joshua 10, verse 16, the five kings that come against Joshua hide themselves in a cave at Machedah. And the list of parallels goes on and on. It's really quite amazing when you study it. Notice, too, what Joshua does to the Amorite kings in chapter 10, verse 24. He tells the captains of Israel to put your feet on the necks of these kings. And this is exactly what Jesus will do one day to his enemies. Psalm 110 tells us that his enemies will be his footstool. Now, once the Amorite coalition falls, the rest of the southern kingdoms are all easy picking. And the rest of chapter 10 sums up the conquest. Machida falls, then Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. And Joshua does to the city-states of the southern Canaan what General Sherman did to the south in the Civil War. I mean, he just leveled them. The south now has fallen, and so Joshua heads north. In chapter 11, we discover another coalition that's forming to fight. Jabin, the king of Hazor, in the north, rallies his neighbors by the waters of Merom. Merom was a few miles from Hazor, which was just south of the Sea of Galilee. And in chapter 11, verse 2, the Sea of Galilee is called Chinnereth, which is interesting. It means heart-shaped. And when you look at it on a map, the Sea of Galilee does look like a harp. Now, Jabin mounts a formidable army. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that he had 300,000 infantry. He had 20,000 cavalry. And he had 10,000 chariots. And each chariot consisted of three soldiers, a driver, a bowman, and a javelin chunker. Jabin's army was the equivalent of a, war, a modern war machine. It was sophisticated by ancient standards. 
And when Joshua heard of it, he got a little intimidated. The Lord encourages him, though, in chapter 11, verse 6. Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. The next day, Joshua leads a surprise attack against Jabin. And verse 8 describes the outcome. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them. The central town of Hazor was burned. All its inhabitants were killed by the sword. In fact, verse 14 tells us Israel left nothing breathing. Remember, these were pagans who were steeped in the occult, and God used Israel to bring judgment upon them. It's a credit to Joshua that many modern Israeli generals have studied his battle tactics and have used them to defeat the Syrians and the Jordanians in recent conflicts. Joshua was the originator of the preemptive strike. Rarely did he wait on his enemy to attack. He always struck first. He also knew the lay of the land, and he used it for his advantage. Often outnumbered, Joshua relied on stealth and speed and surprise. But the real secret to Joshua's success is found in chapter 11, verse 15. There we're told, As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. He was obedient in every detail. He left nothing undone of what God had asked him to do. Guys, Often this is the difference between victory and defeat in our spiritual lives. What have we left undone that God has called us to do? What loose end have we not tied up? What little area of obedience have we not taken to heart? Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded him to do. In the last eight verses of chapter 11... In all of chapter 12, we have Israel's victory summarized for us. Thirty-one kings in all were conquered by Joshua east of the Jordan River. And in the remainder of the book, Joshua will divvy up this land that has been conquered to the twelve tribes. And then those twelve tribes will settle the land. And that's what we'll take up next time.